Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, my name is Emily, like Jovin said. It's my absolute pleasure to be here this morning to get to share from the Bible. So last week, Josh finished our series in the book of Ruth, and we uncovered the hidden hand of God at work. We saw how God took some ordinary people who had endured some of the worst suffering, and he wrote them into a story of redemption, of provision, of hope. He saved them, but through them, he was writing a much bigger story that would save us all. And we saw that in the genealogy at the end that led with David. We know, we know that Jesus was coming in that line. It wasn't always obvious where, how, or even if God was working at times. But with the gift of hindsight, we were able to see it more clearly. But today, we're going to look further at how we, us here today, this morning, get to into this, enter this story of redemption and explore further what it's like when we can't always see God clearly, when we must live by faith and hope and not hindsight, and also to encourage each other to live more truly in this new life that we have been, uh, that he has redeemed us for, that he has redeemed us into. So to do all this, we're going to be uh, reading a, a section of a letter to Titus, which was written by a man called Paul, and he was one of the most influential early uh, Christian leaders. He was a man who actually persecuted Christians, but then he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. He met him face to face and everything changed. Jesus gave Paul a very special assignment, a special mission to spread the message of Jesus to everyone, not just the Jewish people, the people of God as known then, but to people of all nations. So as part of this special assignment, Paul sent his friend Titus to the island of Crete, which is today, as we can see here, uh, it's, part, it's Greek's largest island, uh, circled in red there. Uh, as one of Paul's trusted friends and mentees, so this was someone that Paul was training up uh, in God, uh, Titus was tasked with helping to establish the church on this island, establish a community of believers in Jesus who would follow him. But this island had quite a reputation. And we read earlier in Titus that uh, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. It's not what you want on your tombstone. <laughs> Uh, what a reputation. And they, they were very heavily steeped in Greek mythology. And Zeus was their like, favorite god. And he was a liar. And that's who they modeled themselves after uh, in the stories. There's even an English phrase still today where you can call someone a cretin or describe them as cretinous. And it's actually quite an offensive term for someone who's foolish or stupid. And it's actually come from, from this. Um, so that's, that's a reputation to have as a people. 
There was also, we know from reading the letters and others, that there were a group of Judaizers on the island. So these are people who are passionately trying to get people to stick to the law of God. Um, they were saying that you need to get circumcised, you need to do these things um, to be part of the people of God, which was at odds with the message of Jesus. So, Titus, who we know was a Greek man and probably a very young man, had a very big task to establish the church on this island. And we read in the beginning of the, of the letter many instructions from Paul for the kinds of people needed to lead a church in this place and the kinds of attitudes, characters and behaviours that all followers as followers of Jesus ought to display, especially in this context. And today, we're going to be reading some of the essential truths about who God is and what he's done that underpin and explain all that Paul has said to Titus already. So let's read it together. This is Titus 2 from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Exciting. So this section, when translated into English, is actually just two sentences. The first one, quite a normal length. The second one, very, very long. Um, and it's packed full of deep truths. Paul uses words, single words, that evoke whole stories and whole concepts, um, especially for these original listeners to this letter, which can be lost on us a little when we're reading this outside of that culture. So we're going to try and unpack that a little bit this morning. We're going to do this in three main sections. He has appeared. He will appear again. And while we wait. He has appeared. We read in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. That offers salvation for all people. When something appears. When it has appeared. It means that we get to see something that already existed, but until now, we didn't see. We couldn't see. So if someone were to walk into this room now, appear at the door, it, didn't mean, it doesn't mean that they didn't exist before we could see them. It just means we get to see them now, because they were around the corner before. They were somewhere else. But now they have appeared to us. We can see them. And the idea of God, or a God, appearing was not new to the original uh, beneficiaries of this letter. The word appeared in the Cretan culture actually referred to this concept of epiphany. An epiphany for them described how humans could interact with a deity. So it was if they got to meet a god, that was epiphany. They even had a god called Theophany who had the appearance of a human. When he would appear to a, a person, he would look like a human. So that's what epiphany meant, appearing meant to them, a God who just appeared to them in a moment. To the Jewish people, the idea of God appearing was also part of their history, of their story, and as such, their language. God had appeared to them before, but never fully. 
He had appeared in obscure ways, in dreams, a burning bush, pillars of cloud and fire, and a storm on Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he spoke to them through angels. And God's people saw and experienced his grace and salvation through the things that he did for them, his actions towards them. We see it most crucially and fundamentally in the Exodus story. And the Exodus story is the historic narrative of how God brought the nation of Israel, his people, out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh into freedom in their own land. God, through their leader Moses, performed incredible miracles, uh, which culminated in parting the Red Sea so that they could escape the Egyptian army who were chasing them. And we read, can read all about that in the book of Exodus, where God physically, practically saved, redeemed his people from slavery into a, the land of their own. But Paul, in this letter, is saying something that changes the rest of the story here. He is saying that God's grace has now appeared in Jesus Christ. Not any God pretending to be a human so that he can be seen, like the Cretans thought, and not in an obscure way as has seen in Jewish history, but the one true God, maker of all things, and his grace towards people has appeared in the very real, physical, historically reliable person of Jesus. Who Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he rose back to life, seen by hundreds of people, including Paul, and now he has gone ahead of us to be with God the Father. Post-Exodus, God promised his people, Israel, an ultimate deliverer, an ultimate king who would once and for all deliver them so they'd never be slaves again and all would know that they were God's people. So the Jews were waiting. They were waiting for this person to come. And we read something amazing in the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the four accounts of Jesus' human life on earth. There's a guy called Simeon, and he's working in the temple. And Jesus' parents bring the young boy, Jesus, into the temple. And Simeon says this, My eyes have seen your salvation. And he has just looked upon the boy, Jesus. Jesus was their salvation, their king. But not just for Israel, the Jewish people. We read here that it is for all people. Jesus would redeem humans from slavery. And not just slavery in a physical sense, but a deeper way. A slavery to sin and to death, to separation from God. Wickedness, which comes a bit further down in the, in the passage, can also be translated as lawlessness. So it means every way in which we fall short of God's way of life. His law that we see written in the Ten Commandments. So when we lie or steal, murder, envy, when we disobey our parents, when we break laws, when we bear a false witness, if we commit adultery, if we fail to rest and relent from work, if we have any other God besides the one true God, if we take his name in vain, if we worship created things rather than the one who created them, and if we trust in created things to try and bring us life 
when really they only take our lives and they enslave us to need them, to always need and want more. And unbelief, unbelief is ungodliness and wickedness. When we do any of these things, we fall short. And there is no one, (laughs) no one, no one immune, no one who doesn't need redeeming, saving, no Cretan, no Jew, none of us. And the outcome of evil, wickedness, lawlessness is judgment. God is too good, too just, too fair to let all evil and suffering go unresolved. He will judge and make everything right, put right every wrong, and evil will be put away forever because he is separate from evil. But how could God justly resolve evil and have anybody left (laughs) when we all fall short and we see it in Jesus, God himself, perfect, no evil in him, allowed himself to put on humanity then mocked, tormented, tortured, and crucified by the very people he came to save. He died the death that we all deserve, faced the separation that we all deserve. He didn't pay with money to the person who owned us, like you would redeem a physical slave in this culture, but he paid with his perfect life the cost to free us from our imperfect ones and the death that we deserved, that they are, these imperfect lives would lead to. The one who always existed in beautiful relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, appeared to us, for us, fulfilling the law as we couldn't, being faithful and believing to the end, enduring the agonizing, heartbreaking separation from God the Father on a cosmic scale that we can't imagine so that we don't have to be separate from him anymore. The Jews had to make blood sacrifices to purify themselves from their sin. But Paul is explaining here that Jesus has now completed the ultimate sacrifice for us all. And it is faith in Jesus alone that means we can all be delivered, redeemed, and made pure. If you've been baptized, you have been able to sort of participate in your own exodus moment where we pass through the waters, cleansed and made new, made new by the life and death of Jesus, his good work for us on the cross. And it's by him that we're given a new heart, a new spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus to life in us, a new identity and a new home in God's house. And the Judaizers in Crete needed reminding that it was Jesus alone, not circumcision, not their works or adherence to the law that would save them. There was a new historical benchmark for God's people. A greater exodus had happened. A new point of reference for them and for all people and all history. We are now Christ's. He has bought us. We are his possessions. He gave Everything, everything to buy us back. That is how much God loves us. He has appeared. His grace has appeared. His salvation has appeared. And it is offered to all people. And he will appear again. 
we read in verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is speaking of another epiphany, this time one that will happen in the future. And remember, this is the appearance of something that already exists, but is not yet seen. And Paul's language is very specific and deliberate. He's chosen these words carefully. The terms great, God, and Savior were used in this time period to talk about emperors and godlike human rulers, Caesars. And for Jewish people, these words were historically reserved. They were kept separate, for only used for Yahweh, the sacred name of God, the one and only creator of the universe. So Paul, in his letter to Titus, in these few words, is shattering the established and acceptable understanding and worldview. This statement to describe the person of Jesus would have been so powerful and subversive for the Cretan culture and Jewish hearers. He is implying that Jesus, unlike any human ruler, Caesar or emperor, unlike any Greek mythological god, Jesus is the full representation, representation, embodiment, and expression of God's glory. But he became human for us. And when he appears, we will see him as he is in all his glory. There is no God but him. We have prayed it and sung it this morning. And in Jesus, we get to see him. He will appear to us in his fullness and we will see his face. And with his return, he will bring the total completion of his plan. The good works that he has already begun in redeeming and purifying a people for himself, he will complete and bring all of creation to order. Every knee will bow and every eye will see. And those who have put their faith in Jesus will be given new eternal bodies like his. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a new life, where we will live with God perfectly. No more sin, no more evil and suffering, no more poverty, no more sickness of any kind, no more death. But perfect eternal life with God as it was always supposed to be. Jesus has appeared and he will appear again. But we need to remember, he is in charge right now. Jesus reigns right now, even though we can't see him. We have been redeemed, and he is now and forever our king, our master, our Lord. And we submit to his rule above all others. His grace and salvation has appeared to us. The total salvation of the whole universe will be found in him. It's true now, and we will see it one day. But we wait. We wait to see it. So, while we wait. Now, this is where I think it can get really hard for us as Christians. This is where the theology and the thoughts about God get really practical. (laughs) For the Cretan Christians, for all of us. What does it mean for us to live in between the two appearances of Christ? That he has appeared and that he will appear. What does waiting for his appearance look like? Now you may have seen this image before. 
Uh, when, I thought, when I first saw it, I, I found it pretty funny. I laughed too. I imagine the frantic energy and shock to the system as people react. I think, oh my goodness, he's real, he's here. But actually, the more I've dwelled on this, um, the sadder and sadder this image really is. Because I think it can be scarily true sometimes. It is for me that I could so reduce the grace and salvation and wisdom of God's big plan, what he saved me into, to a scenario where I'm so bent in on myself and this little life that I have right here, right now, so distracted by worldly pleasures that I see God's return like parents coming home and finding out that I haven't cleaned my room like I should have done, or they catch me doing something that I shouldn't be doing. That is not what it is for Jesus to appear again. How ridiculous to think that we could even fool God anyway, to forget that just because we can't see him, it's not like he doesn't exist and he sees all and knows all anyway. He knows what I was doing (laughs) or not doing. Nothing is hidden from him. He is so real and so present. Like Wendy said, prayed out. He is with us. When we're here gathered, when we're out working He is with us. He sees us. He knows us, what we do and what we don't do. He knows the very depths of our hearts. He knows the number of hairs on our head. And he cares. He cares deeply about what we do and don't do. I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss the true life-renewing, worldview-changing, history-shaping hope-giving meaning behind Jesus appearing. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation for all people. And Jesus Christ, representing the full glory and majesty of our creator God, will appear again to judge and restore the whole earth. (laughs) While we wait takes on a very different meaning when I have the magnitude of these truths as my point of reference. Jesus really does change everything. It's like having a new compass with a new north. When I think of what it cost him to graciously save me, again, we sang that this morning, I loved it. Like, we can't even imagine what it cost him on that cross to save me from the consequences of my broken, separated life. But he has saved me as well from living that life. He has saved me from it into a new one. And he hasn't saved me into isolation. I haven't been plucked out of my sin just to be put right back down, just with a badge now that says, it's all right, this one can come in at the end. And I just crack on like normal, doing what I did before until the end. No, we miss something huge if that is what our life is like. We read in verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So two things I want to pull out here. We are not our own anymore. We are his. And we have been redeemed to do good. So I don't belong to myself anymore. And this is good news. (laughs) I don't belong to death. 
and I don't belong to me, which is amazing because I know deep down that I cannot be trusted. <laughs> I am a terrible, terrible person to be in charge when I reflect on, it, on myself. I belong to Jesus. He is my Lord, my master, my king. And through him, God is my father. Even though we were not born naturally into God's people by our race, because of Jesus, who is the perfect son, who was the perfect human on our behalf, because of him, we are adopted as sons and daughters into his family, his household, with all the rights and authority and standing that Jesus has, with all the love that God the Father has for him. <laughs> We're part of his family as sons and daughters, his kingdom. And earlier in Titus, we read more about this idea, this concept of the household, how the local church can be like the household of God. And how elders and overseers are to be like stewards, managers of the household. And everyone part of the household having their own roles and, and jobs to do. But we know that Jesus is the owner of the house. He is the master of the house. And the Cretans needed to hear this. The Judaizers needed to hear this. And we need to hear this. This is amazing news. Because of his past appearance... Now, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, we are all welcomed in. All of us need Jesus. And we all get to share in one bread and one cup. And we get to take that later when we share communion together. We share in one spirit. We become one family, one body, all different parts, but with Jesus as the head. All different household roles, but with Jesus as the master. And this new status that we have, this new identity as his, it supersedes all others. This is the new story over our lives. This is our new family, and we have a new future that supersedes all others. He is a better king, a better master, God and saviour than any other. Perfectly just and trustworthy. Pure and good beyond any earthly measure that we have. He made us, he knows us, and he loves us. Life with him is truly as good as it gets. We don't get to experience it fully yet. But while we wait, while we wait, it is his grace that teaches us how to live this way. And it's not a passive one, but it's an active one. It's one of eagerness to do his will. Not because we feel we have to. We have no fear of punishment now. Jesus has already taken that. We just get to know grace, love, belonging. But we are saved to do good. We don't have to do good works to belong. Jesus has done that. I've just said it. He's done the best good work for us. We believe in him. That is our belonging, our salvation. But it's from this place of belonging that he pours his spirit into us, his body, his people, to redeem us, to keep redeeming and purifying. It's by his spirit that we are moved. We want to obey our new master. We get to work out what it means to live with him now, looking to his appearances. We grow up, we mature in our new identities, in our new household together. It's a process. 
It's a journey that we're all on. And we encourage each other, exhort each other, help each other, hold fast to Jesus, keep looking to him. He is coming back. And he keeps giving gifts, gifts of grace, gifts that build us up and help us, equip us for all and every good work. So that the reality and the truth of our new identity becomes more and more obvious and observable and apparent. We actually get to see it because <laughs> it's already true. And then we just get to see it more and more. And we pray that others will see it. People who don't know Jesus will see it. We read later in the letter and we remember the context and the reputation of Crete as we read this. But I felt it was so encouraging. Paul summarizes it so well. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. Wow. His grace saves us. And then his grace teaches us. It helps us. We don't do it on our own. We're not saved and then we have to work it out by ourselves. It's all his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness every day. While we wait, while we wait, it is his grace that helps us to say no, to say no to trusting any other saviour. Say no to any thought or action that is at odds with the kingly rule of Christ in our lives. To say no to worldly fleeting passions that might be sweet in the moment, but they lead to death trying to trap us back in that slavery that we've been saved from. We learn, we learn to say no to any cultural lie or worldview that doesn't tell the full story of what's actually happening right here and now. And we get to together learn from Jesus, look to him and live each day in his grace to keep repenting, keep believing, keep receiving the grace and mercy that he gives us. And this can be really hard. <laughs> it is for me. Saying no to stuff. To choose to do good when it, costs you, when it costs us. We can get disheartened. Waiting can be hard. It can be super boring. I don't know if, if you've got children. <laughs> Waiting is tough. <laughs> it can be painful. We're waiting in a time where the world isn't right and new. There is still pain and suffering and death and hardship and trial. Doing good is sacrificial and it is not always instantly gratifying. <laughs> 
Our flesh cries out for comfort, for relaxation, for relief. And all of our culture screams to us that the most important thing in life is to be happy. Have fun. Do you? It can be so, so, so tempting. And we call it tempting because it is. It's very tempting (laughs) to do the things that we know are not of God. They're not good. They're not real. But they, they seem so good. And they might be for a moment, for a while. But they will trap us. These things will distract us. And at worst, they will take us out. So this is why we keep meeting together. We keep turning to Jesus together. We keep telling and retelling the true story of who God is, of what he's done, what he's doing, and what he has promised to do. So a few questions to think about just as we finish. If you would consider yourself a Christian, does your life reflect your new identity in Christ? Does it reflect what you believe? Or is there a gap between how you live and what you believe to be true? Does your new life in Jesus look as different as it really is? Are you putting your hope in the past and future appearances of Christ or something or someone else? Do you need to say no to something Say no to behaviors that show you actually have a master other than Jesus. Do you need to say no to any lies that you might be believing about who he he really is, who is actually in charge, and who really loves you? And do you know your belonging in the household of God? Don't let lies hold you back. It's only faith in Jesus that is required. So don't look on and think, oh, it's not for me. I don't fit in. I'm not good enough or I'm not like them. It's not about you. It's not about us. It is about Jesus. He is good enough and he gave everything for us, for you. He chose you. He died for you. Look at him and step in to all that he has won for you. He has work for you. Good work for you. Are you eager to do it? Are you eager to do good? Or do you, like me, and I I confess this is where I'm at, do you need God to help you, remind you of his grace? Maybe even to show you his grace for the very first time. Ask him now to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to move your heart to be eager for him, eager to follow him, eager to do good. And if you are eager, that is wonderful. That is God's grace. Ask him to show you what he has for you. Show you where to get involved. He gives us gifts to help us. Maybe he has something specific for you to give you this morning. So we're going to worship Jesus now. We're going to acknowledge him and respond to him and his amazing grace to us. And later we'll get a chance to take communion to share that one bread, one cup that we all need. We all have grace in common. And we get to remember. We get to remember Jesus appearing before and look to his appearing again.